Welcome back. Glad you're here. Um, again, just welcome to everyone, particularly those that maybe this is your first time to RUF or maybe you've been here a couple of times. We really do want to be a safe place for you. You're welcome here no matter where you are and what you think about Christianity. If you're trying to figure out what you think about Jesus, this is the place for you. We want to give you the space to figure that out and to think through that and ask the hard questions. But we also want to be a place where you maybe you are a Christian and you're really struggling and you need to hear about Jesus and his grace. You're welcome here. Maybe you've never been better and uh, things are going great spiritually for you. And you're also, of course, welcome here. And so wherever you are tonight, just know that we're glad you're here and welcome to RUF. We have been studying this semester. Uh, basically, one of the things uh, that we do in RUF is normally re rotate between semesters, Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, last semester, we did the book of Exodus. This semester, we're doing the book of John. And we just kind of march straight through books of the Bible and look at what it says and how it applies to our life. And that's what we're doing this semester in John. And one of the things we've seen is John was written so that we might believe in Jesus. And through believing in him, we might find life in his name. That's really the point of the whole semester and the point of the book of John and week by week, we're looking at passages and really asking the two questions of who is Jesus and how can we find life in his name. And so we're going to do that again tonight, except we're doing it now through John 11, which is a big turning point in the book of John. And so before we dig in, let me pray and ask God to help us. Father, uh, Son, and Holy Spirit... We ask that you would come into this place and meet us. Would you remove all distractions, all the things that we've got going on in our minds and hearts, uh, whether it's projects or tests or uh, maybe uh, whether or not we got that job that we interviewed for uh, last week. Whatever it is, uh, for the next couple of minutes, would you even supernaturally take away those things and help us to focus on you, what you're doing in our lives, and on what you say to us in John chapter 11 through your word. And I pray that it would be, tonight would just be deeply encouraging. Uh, I know it's been for me as I've studied this week. Would you encourage all of us through this passage uh, tonight and show us Jesus in the incredible uh, life that he offers us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you're not already there, John chapter 11, and if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to either look on with a friend or maybe on the announcement sheet. You'll see the text is printed for you there also. Um, basically, I don't know if you're like me or not, but one of my struggles is I am often too attached to technology. Uh, particularly, I often feel and struggle with being too attached to that thing called the iPhone. So much so that I'm fearful of what my girls are going to say about me 
in 10, 15 years from now, it really is a deep fear of mine, that in 10 or 15 years, they'll say, hey, tell me about your dad. They'll say, my dad's great, but this is my lasting image of him. <laughs> Looking down at the iPhone. And, and that really is true. That really is something that I think a lot about. And that's something that actually is, disappoints me in myself, if I'm being real honest here is that often I get disappointed that technology, particularly my smartphone, gets in the way and actually permit, uh, prevents me from having real relationships with the people that I love the most. And it's interesting, I kind of got a punch in the gut recently when I was referred to an article. It was actually written a couple of years ago, the New York Times, by a man by the name of Jonathan Franson. And listen, the title of the article is Technology Provides an Alternative to Love. Liking is for cowards. Go for what hurts. Listen to what he says. I'm going to read a little bit of this for you and listen closely. I may, I may be overstating the case a bit. Very probably, you're sick to death of hearing social media disrespected by cranky 51-year-olds. My aim here is mainly to set up a contrast in his article between narcissistic tendencies of technology and the problem of actual love. My friend Alice Sebode likes to talk about getting down in the pit and loving somebody. She has in mind the dirt that love inevitably splatters on the mirror of our own self-regard. The simple fact of the matter is that trying to be perfectly likable is incompatible with loving relationships. Because sooner or later, for example, you're going to find yourself in a hideous screaming fight and you'll hear coming out of your mouth things that you yourself do not like at all. And things that shatter your self-image as a fair, kind, cool, attractive, in-control, funny, likable person. But something realer than likability in that moment is coming out of you. And suddenly you're able to have an actual life and a real relationship. Because suddenly there's a choice to be made. Not a fake consumer choice between a Blackberry or an iPhone, but a question do I love this person? And for the other person, does this person love me? When I read that, it was like a punch in the gut because so often I cop out with cheap, easy, narcissistic love. And friends, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't settle for narcissistic self-love, but Jesus, as the article states, actually gets down in the pit with us. And we see it in John chapter 11. He gets down into the pit with his friends and really loves them. Tonight in John chapter 11, we're going to see Jesus love his friends and see Jesus love us, actually, in three ways. And we're going to see that through Jesus waiting. You see the outline there for you? Through Jesus waiting, through Jesus weeping, and through his waking. Those are the three things, waiting, weeping, and waking. 
that we're going to look at tonight. Let's look at number one. We see his love for us through his waiting. Look at verses one through three. The chapter begins, and John tells us about three of Jesus' closest friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they're way more than Facebook friends. They're real friends. They they spend real time together. Jesus, probably passing through town, would eat Martha's food and stop at their house, maybe even stay the night as he was passing through. And if you look at those first three verses, and yes, this is kind of weird, Mary even washed Jesus' feet. (laughs) And so the point is that they were close. And you can't get out of John 11 without realizing something very significant, that Jesus not only loved these people and loved his friends, but that he really, really liked them as well. And that is why, if you look at verse 6, I find it deeply troubling. With that background, that is what makes verse 6 so strange. Lazarus, whom he loved, he heard that he was ill, therefore he waited. Now think about that just for a second. You think, based on how much he loved these folks, that it would read... Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, and so he got on his donkey, and immediately he went to Lazarus' side so that he could hold his hand and be with him and actually do something about it. But that's not what it says. He loved them, therefore he waited two days. Have you ever thought about this? I don't know what to do with this. This is hard. And so what's going on? Why would Jesus do this with people he loves? Why not go? Well, let me try to sum it up. Friends, Jesus loves them enough to disappoint them. And he loves you enough to disappoint you. Let me try to explain with an illustration of a current issue. This is the night of technology illustrations, I guess. But with a current issue going on with our oldest daughter, uh, Kate, who is a second grader at Bramlett Elementary here in Oxford. Um, I don't know when this happened for you, but you probably know when, you know, how old you were, and maybe you were second grade, I don't know. Um, But All of Kate's friends, or at least a few of her good friends at school and in the neighborhood are actually, for Christmas and their birthdays, getting iPhones. They're getting iPads. Yeah, see, that didn't happen to you, I guess. Okay. Um, Well, and so literally the other day they're playing in our neighborhood and here comes one of the girls in the neighborhood in the house with their iPhone with just full coverage. Yes, I'm freaked out. (laughs) Okay. But, and so Kate, naturally, because her friends that she loves, they have tablets and iPhones, and so she wants an iPhone. Because when Kate thinks of an iPhone, because lots of times we let her play with ours in the home, her thought is, 
this is, there's nothing more fun than this. This is the greatest thing ever. I listen to One Direction. I make silly videos with my sisters and take silly, crazy pictures. And I play lots of games and I have so much fun. Why in the world would they not give this to me? You see, Kate doesn't have a clue about how expensive that is. As a second grader, she doesn't have a category for the responsibility that comes with keeping up with an iPhone and not shattering the screen or whatever. She doesn't have a clue about the dangers or potential dangers of full internet access. Because in her world, she's thinking, this is awesome, this is fun, why in the world would my parents make me wait and not get this for me now? Well, the reason is because her parents, Susie and I, my wife, we know Kate, we love Kate, and we know what's best for Kate, and we have a different perspective. We've lived longer, we have a broader, fuller perspective on life, and we have a better idea, actually, of what Kate needs and when she needs it better than she does. And so we've got to help Kate think about these things. And I tell you that because that is the picture that I want you to think about as we look at John chapter 11, because that's what Jesus is doing. John chapter 11 teaches us that because, and we've seen this all semester, Jesus is life. And because Jesus is life, he is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-wise. And he really, really loves you. And because of all of those things, what that means is that following Jesus might, might actually involve waiting. It might actually involve trusting that Jesus knows better what you need and when you need it in your life than you do. You see, we often think when we think about Jesus loving and caring for us, and we might not say this out loud, but it's often in our hearts and how we live. We think that Jesus loving us and caring for us means that he gives us anything we want when we want it. That Jesus is obligated or he will fix my academic struggles. He will get me into the grad school that I want to get in because I have done it for him. I've been good. He will get me that job that I need. He will bring Mr. Right into my life. He will completely take away my struggles with depression and with sin. And then we come up against a passage like this and it says, Lazarus fell ill, but he waited. Friends, Sometimes Jesus' love and care for you means that he will disappoint you and make you wait. But why? Why in the world would Jesus do that to people that he loves and to his own children? Well, think about it this way. 
Look at verses 15 and 42, and let me try to sum up what those verses are saying. God will make you wait. And God will bring disappointment into your life because He wants you to go to Him to get Him, not to get things from Him. You go to God to get God, not to get things from God. In God, because He loves you, He wants to be the end, not a means to the end. And this is why many of your prayer lives are so confusing because when God disappoints you or makes you wait or He doesn't respond on your timetable, our initial reaction in that prayer is, God, what are you doing? Give it to me. I want it now. Give it back to me. Give me my boyfriend back and I will be fine. But if you do that, in moments of waiting and disappointment, you've totally missed the point of what God is doing. Rather than going to God in those moments and say, give it back, God says, we need to go to Him and say, let me have you. I love what Keller says. He says, you don't realize God is all you need until God is all you have. And so the first question is this, where does Jesus need to disappoint you tonight? Where does he need to disappoint you so that your hope will be in him and not in the things that he can do for you? That's the first point. Jesus shows his love for his friends through waiting. Secondly, he shows it through weeping. Look at verse 35. The older I get, this becomes one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And there is a ton in these verses surrounding verse 35. But let me try to just summarize it very simply by saying, Jesus shows up three days late and Lazarus is dead. And if you've ever been to a funeral, you know what this is like when maybe you're going to a funeral of someone who has experienced significant loss and the whole way to the funeral or the whole way as you're walking up the receiving line at the visitation, you're thinking, what in the world am I going to say? What in the world am I going to do? How am I going to act when I get there? Well, let's look at what Jesus does. We see two things in the passage. He goes to Martha and he comforts her by giving her truth. He talks to her. But if you notice, that's not what he does with Mary. Because then he goes to Mary and he doesn't give her truth. Instead, he gives her tears. And the commentators, all of them point out that the English translations kind of miss the effect here. That it's way more powerful than just simply he wept. It's basically that he, when he got to Mary, Jesus burst into tears. You know what that's like too, don't you? Maybe you've experienced loss or had something really hard in your life and you see that good friend as they knock on the door and you open it up and they embrace you and you haven't cried all day and then boom, out of nowhere, you just burst into tears. 
That's what's happening. That's the picture we have in John chapter 11. That's what's going on. But why is Jesus crying? Well, they're not sentimental tears. They're not tears of regret. Well, then what are they? What moved Jesus to tears? Look at verses 33 and 38. They give us the answer. It's a very interesting statement. And so when Jesus gets on the scene and he sees the reality of Mary weeping over her brother's death, weeping over his grave, notice what it says. Jesus was moved deeply in his spirit. He was greatly troubled in that moment. And the original language in the New Testament is Greek. And this word here, and I wouldn't bring this up if it didn't get at the really something important, I think, that it's trying to teach us. But the word that John uses is a word used of animals who at the time were filled with rage. And so think of something wild, like a wild horse that is filled with rage. That's the picture of what Jesus is experiencing. And so what's the point? Well, the point is Jesus is crying tears of anger. Jesus is absolutely furious. Why? What's he mad at? Well, he's mad at death. Jesus hates death. And he looks at what's happened here with Lazarus and he sees the effects of sin in the world and what it's done and he hates it. And friends, he hates it way more than you and I do. And it moves him to tears, tears of anger because of what death has done in the world. It actually reminds me of the Chronicles of Narnia and one of my favorite passages comes from the magician's nephew. And if you've read that, you know that Diggory is the main character in the story. And Diggory is experiencing these adventures in Narnia, but always in the back of his mind is the fact that his mother is deathly ill. And he knows that Aslan, who is the Christ figure in the story, is the only one that really is able to do something about it. And so he sees Aslan and he runs to Aslan and it's almost uncontrollably. He shouts out, Aslan, Aslan, please, please, will you cure my mother? And I love what Lewis does here. Lewis interjects and writes this comment about that scene. He says, at that moment, Diggory looks up at the lion's face and he sees something that surprised him more than anything in his life. As he looked into the lion's eyes, he saw these huge, big, shining tears standing in his eyes. This great, fierce lion bends down to Diggory. And Lewis comments and says, his tears were so big compared to Diggory's tears that for a moment it was as if the lion actually was more sorry about his mother than he was himself. Friends, Jesus loves you. 
enough to disappoint you. But he also loves you enough to weep with you. Here's a question. Where do you need to go tonight? In your life, in your heart, and just simply weep. Friends, there is nothing better than John chapter 11. Because here's what it tells you. Wherever that place is for you, that place of brokenness and pain, John chapter 11 says you have a Savior. You have a God that grabs you by the hand and actually goes to that place with you and weeps with you. In a room this size, some of you have been abused physically, emotionally, sexually by people that were supposed to protect you and take care of you. Others of you come from broken homes and many, many, many times over the course of your life and maybe you're there at this moment, you feel like you're at a breaking point because you look around and it seems like everyone else's life is so much easier than yours and nothing ever seems to work out quite so nicely for you. Or maybe it's death. Maybe you've got a parent that's terminally ill. Or maybe you've lost a parent. Or a sibling. Or a family member. Or a really good friend. Or maybe it's an addiction that has totally wrecked your family. Maybe it's your addiction or your sin. And it's totally wrecking your life. You've got to hear this. Jesus grieves over those things more than you do. He is sorrier than you are. And He wants to take you by the hand. And He wants to go to those places with you and weep with you. Where do you need to go tonight with Jesus and cry? Let me say another thing. Who around you, think about your friends, who around you needs someone not to come and tell them Jesus works all things together for good? Who around you needs someone not to do that or not to say God's in control, it'll be okay? Friends, those things are true and there's a time and a place for us to say those things. But who around you needs someone to just hug them and weep with them because of something going on in their life right now at this moment? Are you willing to go to them and instead of beating them up with truth... Comforting them with your tears. Friends, Jesus loves you not... He loves you too much to give you everything you want and to never make you wait and to never disappoint you. And He also loves you so much that He's willing to weep with you. 
So we see Jesus' love for us in waiting, weeping, and lastly, waking. And so, yes, you're thinking, this is awesome. Jesus sees my sin and he's angry about it. And he enters into me with it. But ultimately, what you want to know is, does he do something about it? Can he do something about it? Look at verse 53. We didn't cover that verse because that's a lot to read, but I want you to skip ahead if you have a Bible. And notice that when you go to verse 53, you pass the heading, the plot to kill Jesus. Did you notice that? That's very, very significant. Because what it tells you, it meant that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, his days were numbered. This was the turning moment that actually sent Jesus on his way towards the cross. Because a dead man had been dead for four days, and Jesus comes and raises him from the dead, and the religious leaders at the time could not take it anymore, and they plotted to kill Jesus at this moment. Jesus is God. He knows all this. He is all-knowing, and so he knows what's going to happen if he raises Lazarus from the tomb, but he goes anyway, and he does it. And I love what Keller says. It can't be said any better than this. It's only the only way to bring Lazarus out of the tomb and out of the grave was for him to go into the grave, was for Jesus to go into it. And that's exactly what he does. He raises Lazarus, and after this moment, if you look at the book of John, he goes to the cross, he goes to his death, and he bears the judgment for what we deserve. And so there's another reason that Jesus is crying. Jesus is crying, notice, on the way to the tomb and not smiling and saying, hey, I'm about to do something really cool and powerful so that all you can see how great I am. No, he is weeping and shaking with anger and tears because he can't help but see in Lazarus his own story. Because he knows what it's going to cost him in order to save us from eternal death. It's going to cost him his life. And he goes knowing all of that and he raises Lazarus from the dead. And I love this. Look at the way he calls Lazarus out of the grave. Look at verses 43 through 44. He cried, not in a soft voice, but in a loud voice. Lazarus, come out. Says the man who died came out, and then I love this. Jesus says, Unbind him, let him go. And in that moment, is Jesus showing us his power? Yes, but it's way more than that. He's giving us a foretaste in this moment of what is to come. Or as one writer put it, he's actually rewinding the future to the present. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ tonight, write it down. Mark my words. There is a day coming in the future and this event is a foretaste of that. But there is a day coming, if you are a believer, when Jesus is going to come to you and He's going to stand over your grave and He's going to say, Tevin, come out. 
Murray, come out. Buckner, come out. Howe, come out. And I wish I had time to go through everyone in the room. But Jesus is going to do that. And when He comes and does that, three things He's going to bring with Him. And here they are real quickly. He will bring with Him. And when that happens, three things will happen. All the bad things will work for good. That means all of your tears, all of your sleepless nights, all of your bouts with depression, Jesus will work for good. That's number one. Number two, all truly good things will last forever. Think about the thing right now in this life on earth that you love more than anything else. That doesn't hold a candle to what Jesus is bringing. That's only a glimpse into your future if you're a Christian. Thirdly, when Jesus comes, He's bringing and says that our best things are yet to come. Think of the best party you've ever been to. Think of Saturday's game day in the grove in the fall. Not even close. Not even close to what Jesus is bringing to the world. And I don't know about you, but isn't that exactly what we need tonight? Isn't that exactly the hope and comfort that we need? To know that we have a God that doesn't just get angry at sin and sad at sin and weep with us, and that's awesome and good, but we need a God that can do something about it and that has doing, done something about it and that will do something about it in the future. What we need more than anything else, and I love what St. Ambrose says, we need to know that the one that weeps is also the one that causes tears to cease. And that's who Jesus is and what he's done and what he will do in the future. Let's pray. <clears throat>